You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, and I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. This is the Midweek Debrief, number eight. I am not myself. I actually thought about the title to this episode before I started the podcast this week. Just goes to show that sometimes I can be on the ball and ahead of the game. But today, as we enjoy our quarantine in the year of our Lord, March 18th, 2020, due to the COVID pandemic, I sit down and I wanted to read today for you a poem that I came across by an old, old, old poet, writer, mystic, a monk, theologian by the name of Richard Roll, who lived approximately 1300 to 1349. He was a 14th century uh, monk, theologian, writer. And I was reflecting on this Yeah, quite a lot over the weekend. Um, If you want to go back and listen to the BJJ debrief that I posted yesterday, or depending on when you're listening to this, go to the website at Anchor FM and you can download or upload it there. Otherwise, you can probably get it through your podcast platform. But in that, reflecting on competition, reflecting on before, during, and after competition, and what I learn every time I compete, and just the whole process itself, and how it forces me to confront aspects of myself, weaknesses, vulnerabilities, things that I don't like about myself necessarily that I don't want to confront, but in order to grow and to better myself as a martial artist, as a competitor, as a teacher, pastor, father, husband, and just man in general, I have taken the tact of confronting myself when the opportunity permits or it poses itself to me. And yet part of being a martial artist then is recognizing where you come from. And I have had the privilege through this thing called jujitsu to meet one of the reasons that I started jujitsu and at a seminar this past year, uh, Gio Martinez, the freakazoid. And I hope in the future to meet other men who inspired me to begin jiu-jitsu, such as Marcelo Garcia, Eddie Bravo, God willing, Hickson Gracie at some point. That would be fantastic. But these men then, I'm sure, just like Gio and others, are quick to point to their teachers. And their teachers are quick to point to their teachers. And in jiu-jitsu, in particular jiu-jitsu, that I'm thinking about it, because it is such a new phenomenon in the United States. It's been around for a while, but it's a new phenomenon as far as its popularity goes in the United States, and it's only really been in the last five to ten years that it's taken off and become a part of the popular conversation in our culture, thanks to the UFC and the proliferation of jiu-jitsu gyms and mixed martial arts academies now. It used to be, you talk to my coach, who's not that much younger than I am, it wasn't that easy to find a gym to train at when he was coming up. And yet, in the last five years, everywhere that I go, there's usually a jiu-jitsu or mixed martial arts academy within driving distance of wherever I'm staying at. And we all come from somewhere. And whether you want to say it's the Gracies or the Machados from Brazil or Mieda from Japan who brought jiu-jitsu to Brazil and taught the Gracies uh, jiu-jitsu, 
however far back, Yoko Kano with judo and how he worked to legitimize judo slash jujitsu and uh, get it legalized again in Japan in his generation. You can just keep going back as far as you want. Yesterday was um, National Muay Thai Day, for example. And now that I'm thinking about it, let me bring it up that there's things about Muay Thai that I learned yesterday that I didn't know. And not to say that I know everything there is to know about mixed martial arts, it's just that you forget where you come from sometimes because you get so locked into, at least I should say you, I get so locked into being present tense and I get dialed into my schedule and where I need to be when every hour of the day that I forget sometimes to open up that that perspective and broaden my, you know, um, open up my bandwidth and do a deep dive on, well, where did Muay Thai come from and why do I train Muay Thai today and who do I owe it to that I get to teach and train others in this art that also has given so much to me. So for National Muay Thai Day, and I'm probably going to murder this name, so forgive me, but Nai Kanam Tom, that's N-A-I Nai Kanam Tom. Khan, K-H-A-N, Om, O-M, Tom, T-O-M, Kanam, Tom. Nai Kanam, Tom, which technically is three names, was a boxer and a soldier in the Thai army. In 1767, during one of their many wars with the neighboring Burmese, he was captured and taken to Burma. The Burmese king held a religious festival at which there were a number of martial art contests. Nai Kanam, Tom, was chosen to battle a Burmese fighter who used a Burmese martial art form against Nai Kanam Thom's Muay Thai. He defeated him handily, that is, Nai defeated the Burmese fighter handily, and then went on to beat a further nine competitors without taking a break. The Burmese king was so impressed with his skills that he granted Nai Kanam Thom his freedom. His legend as a fighter and as the figurehead of Muay Thai lives on to this day, celebrated March 17th every year. So there you go. If you didn't know that, Nai Kanam Tom is the OG of Muay Thai. And if not for his nine straight victories, probably because he was fighting for his life in that instance, since he was a prisoner of war, the legend of Nai Kanam Tom passed from one generation to another. And Muay Thai became the national martial art of that people. And as a consequence, it eventually found its way west to the United States and eventually found its way to my gym. And my instructors taught me Muay Thai. And now I teach others Muay Thai. All because of one man way back in the day, 1767 approximately, made it possible through his courage, his bravery, and his survival, basically, in that situation. And so because of him, I can sit here and talk to you about that today, which then brings me back around to Richard Roll, the monk that I talked about in the beginning, and what he had to write in this poem. Roll writes, The limbs that move, the eyes that see, these are not entirely me. Dead men and women helped to shape the mold that I do not escape. The words I speak, the written line, these are not uniquely mine. For in my heart and in my will, old ancestors are warring still. Celt, Roman, Saxon, 
and all the dead, from whose rich blood my veins are fed. In aspect, gesture, voices, tone, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. In fields they tilled, I plow the sod, I walk the mountain paths they trod. Around my daily steps arise the good and the bad, those I comprise. We all come from somewhere, and yet at present, especially in the United States and in the Western industrial world, thanks to postmodern philosophy, we tend to think that we are somehow self-creating, sui generis is the Latin term, that we kind of created ourselves from scratch, which is a part of the American dream or the American ideal. It's the Horatio Alger story, go west, young man, meaning you can just keep going west back in the day, back in the 1800s, for example. You could just keep moving west and continue, continuously reinvent yourself until you found the person that you wanted to be. And now with social media, this is also true again, that social media is in some ways the Wild West, this frontier where I can be whoever I want to be. I can make a brand out of myself, out of my own name. I can become the warrior priest, for example, and that becomes my brand. And although I gave myself that name kind of tongue-in-cheek coming up with the name for the podcast, it's also reflective of the way that I want to see myself and also the way that I want to portray myself to others, that I am a pastor, I am a servant of God, but that I'm also a warrior and I've chose to live by a warrior's ethic, a warrior's lifestyle. And... There was a time when chaplains fought alongside their, their men. And it's only been recently since the drafting of the Geneva Convention in particular that chaplains were relegated to the rear, that they weren't allowed to carry arms, bear arms against the enemy and march into battle with their fellow soldiers. But what Roll is pointing at is what I'm driving at too with my my heritage, our shared heritage for all of us who train in jiu-jitsu, our shared heritage of Nai Kanam Tham for those of us who train Muay Thai. We all come from somewhere. And as much as, like I said, in the United States and in the Western industrial world, we like to think that we can kind of create ourselves as we go and create our own reality, right? That's the popular catchphrase, find your truth. And then something like the coronavirus happens and reminds us that objective reality doesn't care about your truths and slams us back down to earth and makes us eat a big mouthful of reality. The thing is, we all come from somewhere, and that's an objective fact. That's an objective reality. None of us is self-perpetuating. None of us is self-creating. And no matter what we may like to put out there on social media and how we want to brand ourselves on social media, the truth is the truth. And we can't escape it when we look in the mirror in the morning, for example. And I think, to go back to Carl Jung for a moment, Carl Jung made the comment, to paraphrase Carl Jung anyways, that the most neurotic people that he met were those who could not distinguish between the person that they were to themselves in their own mind and the person they were in reality. And Jung's point is that we all project out onto the world, we project out onto other people how we want to be viewed by them. And yet, we have to be aware that we are projecting. 
and that that is not our true self, that we are filtering, we are wearing masks or costumes in order to present ourselves in a certain way. So life, to a certain extent, is theater because we are all acting out roles for ourselves. We are acting out roles within our relationships. We call it writing scripts, for example. In recovery, we talk about writing scripts and how detrimental and destructive that can be for addiction and how destructive it is in relationships. Like think of a family dynamic at the holidays and how when you walk into that that setting, that situation, there's like this script, this unwritten script that everyone has a role and everyone is expected to play their role. So if you're the oldest child, you are the responsible one. You're the one who's supposed to be the parent, the proxy parent to your younger siblings. The middle child, who's the middle child? The forgotten child, the the ignored child, the invisible child. And the youngest child is the wild child and the baby of the family that everyone has to take care of. And mom and dad have their roles and aunt and uncle, grandma, grandpa, everybody has their role. And I know at least for myself, when I got clean and sober in 1998 and things started to change for me significantly, especially once I started going to AA meetings and taking my, my sobriety seriously, I got a lot of comments from family and friends and the comments were negative and pejorative. You've changed. We don't recognize you anymore. What happened? And essentially at the root of that was I threw out the script. I was no longer the irresponsible drug addled, you know, baby of the family, even though I was the oldest grandchild and I was the oldest child in my family by 11 years, which is a whole other story. I was still treated as the baby and I was given a free pass most of the time for my transgressions. And if I asked for it, I usually got it. And once I flipped the script on that and I pulled back from that and refused to be that person because I couldn't be that person anymore because I was sober, there was a void there and my family recognized it. And even though getting clean and sober was a positive for me, and I'm sure my wife would argue a positive for her in the context of our marriage, for others, it was very difficult. And for friends that I had gone to college with, it was very difficult for them to accept me sober. And to be blunt and to give them you know, the benefit of the doubt, I didn't know who I was at that time either. I was just newly sober. And my brain was in chaos and my emotions were in chaos. And I was newly married. So that was an added layer of crazy trying to figure out how to be married. And here we are, two abuse victims, two abuse survivors in our own rights, trying to figure out how to live together in a healthy, stable relationship, which to be blunt, took us about mm, 11 years, I think, to really work that all out. And yet, again, with AA, with recovery, there's Bill W. And there's the whole tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous and all of the people everywhere around the world who set the table for me to come to an AA meeting in order to work on my sobriety. I didn't just show up and there was a bunch of people there and we all just figured out how to get sober without any tools or resources provided to us by the past. And Roll's point then is that I think for myself reading this, that what got me thinking then and what made me want to record this is we get, like I said, so such tunnel vision and we get so narrow in our view of ourselves and of the world that we forget that we all come from somewhere. And in my opinion, a big part of the postmodern project is to destroy that history, to destroy objective reality and make everything subjective, make everything about the self. Postmodernism, in my opinion, is very narcissistic and very ego-driven. 
And Jung's point, I think, is well put. If we don't distinguish between the person that we want to be seen as versus the person we actually are, it's not going to make us better people. It's not going to improve our mental health or our emotional stability or just our relationships. It's not going to make us better. It's not going to help us grow because we're living with this dichotomy of the person we want to be versus the person we are. And I've talked about this in relation to beginning martial arts for myself and the fear and how long it took me to get out of my own way to walk into a gym, to begin training. That I was always afraid that the person that I thought that I was wasn't the person that I actually was. And what I mean by that is I grew up being afraid of a lot of stuff because I was abused. And so I was afraid of my father. I was afraid of my uncles. I was afraid of my grandma's husband because they all abused me in their own way. And I was afraid of, I was always the new kid because we moved so much. So I was always afraid of not fitting in. And I was afraid of being found out because I was quirky and weird and idiosyncratic. And I still am. It's just that I've learned that that's not something to be ashamed of. And, but when you're a kid, there's nothing worse than not fitting in, right? And so all of these things contributed to my ongoing sense of fear and the addiction and alcoholism and everything that comes with that and being poor and having hand-me-downs over and over and over. This the reinforcement of shame and the reinforcement of guilt and the reinforcement of these feelings that I don't fit in anywhere. I'm not like other people. I'm not normal. They're going to eventually find out. And then my life is going to be just torment from here on out. Living with that fear, but yet believing that I was a strong person, I was a courageous person, that I had the heart of a warrior. I was always afraid then to start martial arts because I was afraid that I would find out that how I saw myself was a lie. And the truth was I was a coward. And the truth was I was a shrinking violet and I was a fraud. So going in for my first class that first morning, three years ago, that was a horrifying moment for me. It was terrifying because that was my moment of confrontation with myself and not just myself in the moment, but 20 plus years. In fact, my whole life was narrowed down to that one moment of walking in the door and taking that first jujitsu class. Everything hung on that for me at that moment. And coming out the other side of that and realizing that, yeah, it was terrifying to do that. And it was a complete blow to my ego. And it was crushing to my, my version of myself, the way I saw myself. Yet at the heart of it, I really relished that hour. And I walked away with this exhilaration. It was definitely like riding a, a roller coaster for the first time kind of exhilaration. It was definitely mixed with terror. But it was also that sense of, I survived. I didn't die. And I think this is something that I want to do again. And three years later, here I am talking about competition and, and, and conditioning and preparing for fights and teaching and everything that jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai has given me in an abstract sense, but also in a very concrete, real sense. My coaches, my training partners, my teammates, my opponents in competition, all of these people make me who I am today. So that when I go to bed today, I can say, I'm satisfied. I am satisfied with the man that I am today. And I am satisfied with what I have today. And when I wake up tomorrow, I'm going to work so that I can go to bed tomorrow night, God willing, and say the same again. But that every day I get up 
is an opportunity to express my gratitude and to show my gratitude to all of those people who came before me, who made it possible for me to be here today, doing what I love to do, being the man that I always wanted to be, that I prayed to become, and to be able to read something like Richard Roll's poem, to be able to read about someone like Maeda or Yoko Kano or Naikonam Tom, whoever it might be, and say, I'm a part of that now. I'm a part of that legacy. I'm a part of the Machado legacy in jiu-jitsu because Eddie Bravo was a black belt under a Machado, and my coach is a black belt under Eddie, and God willing, someday I'll be a black belt under my coach, and I get to be a branch on that tree so that I can say I'm a part of something bigger than myself, and how can I not be grateful for that opportunity? So to go back to role, the limbs that move, the eyes that see, these are not entirely me. Dead men and women helped to shape the mold that I do not escape. The words I speak, the written line, these are not uniquely mine. My physical attributes were given to me by my ancestors, by my grandmother and my grandfather, great uncles and aunts, so forth and so on. Would my physical appearance be my great uncles and aunts? No, I guess it wouldn't be, would it? Because that would be like one step removed. That was, those would be my cousins. Sorry, just trying to get the math straight. <laughs> But my physical appearance, I didn't just pop out of nowhere. God didn't just say, okay, I'm going to create Donovan this way. He's going to be a snowflake, completely different than anyone I've ever created. That's true in a sense, but also not true because genetics. And I am the sum total of all of my ancestors to the present tense. And I can't escape that mold. I can't escape my nose. I can't escape my my physical build. I can't escape my idiosyncrasies and some of my personality quirks, which if you saw my dad or you saw my grandpa, you'd say, oh, Donovan does that too. The words I speak, the written line, these are not uniquely mine. Nothing that I'm saying right now in my reflection is uniquely me. It is a lifetime of reading and reflection and listening to lectures and listening to people talk around AA tables and around book studies and around other events so that when I speak and I sit here and riff without a script for these podcasts, it's not like I'm working without a net. There are literally tens of thousands of books and lectures and conversations that have happened leading up to this moment. And so I am, I am a quilt. I am a, a pot roast in a stew of, of ingredients at this point. And I used to kind of be ashamed of that because I wanted to be original because I was naive and I didn't comprehend that the people that I was reading weren't making it up for themselves either, that they weren't original. They were taking from someone else. It's just that they weren't pulling back the veil and revealing their sources so that when I read them or I looked at their art or I listened to their music, I thought, oh, I could never be as great as him or her making that stuff up. And I was ashamed of copying them. And then only as I've gotten older and matured and found those sources that influenced my favorite musicians and artists and writers, have I discovered, oh, okay, we're all, a, we're all frauds. We're all copycats. We're all forgeries. And that's good though. Because again, what a wonderful heritage laid out for us by these people that came before us that they left this for us to feast upon these treasures of music and art and literature, martial arts. 
that this is all there because of their sacrifices and because of their commitment and their obsession with this thing. And that, you know, how can I show my gratitude for those people? I can pay it forward. What they've taught me, I can teach others. What they have given me, I can give away to others. And that's the way this works. That's how this continues. That's how this tree continues to grow and to develop new branches and produce even more fruit is if we all recognize that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves and express that gratitude by giving it away to others. And so in my heart and in my will, old ancestors are warring still, Celt, Roman, Saxon, all the dead from whose rich blood my veins are fed. Ain't that the truth? I'm Irish by descent, predominantly. And yet I also have some, um, uh, well, Gaelic in me, obviously, and Celtic. Um, I have relatives from Gaul, and I have Germanic relatives. I have Saxon blood in me. I have Anglo blood in me. I'm sure there's probably a little Welsh in there somewhere. But predominantly, I claim the Irish. But I'm also a six-foot-two-inch, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Irishman, which means there was some Norse folks on a boat at some point who made a stop in my ancestor's village, and that's how I got here, because there's black Irish, and then there's the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Irish folks, and we ain't pure Gaelic stock. Let's put it that way. I got some Viking in me, too. But we all come from somewhere. And if we go back far enough, and I guess this is a tangent we're talking about, if we go back far enough, we all come from the same people. And, you know, for myself, because I'm a Christian, I believe that God created a man, and from the man he created a woman, and they were made for each other. And it doesn't matter whether you believe in the creation story or you think we got here somehow through natural selection. We all came from someone, some two people. That's how procreation works. At the end of the day, procreation works by man and woman coupling. We all, if we run it back far enough, come from the two, two of the same parents. We all come from the same parents. And in Judeo-Christian theology, we call that Adam and Eve. Others just call it the first man and woman, whatever it may be. But we all come from the same parents. And that means that something like racism is just about the stupidest thing that you could possibly invent. Because at the end of the day, whether your skin is, you know, the pigment, your skin pigmentation is light or dark or somewhere in between, we all came from the same parents. So it doesn't matter if you're African or Mexican or Norwegian or Polynesian. We all came from the same parents. We're all a part of the same family tree. We all came from somewhere and we branched out and we grew and our families gave birth to bigger families and those families gave birth to villages and tribes that eventually became nations. And yet, if we run it back far enough, we all come from the same place. So racism and bigotry is just, it's just stupid. (laughs) In my opinion, it's just dumb because we all came from the same parents. And... It's like in martial arts. I don't, I've not actually experienced this in my, for myself, but older folks have talked about it before in the sense of, well, my jujitsu academy is better than your jujitsu academy because we're from the Gracie line of jujitsu or we're from the Machado line of jujitsu or this is my instructor and, well, my instructor is better than your. Really? I mean, really, how is that productive? How is that helping promote and further and grow jujitsu? It, in my opinion, it's not. You can have your opinion. I'm not a big fan of Aikido or Tai Chi or Kung Fu or any of that stuff. But I'm not going to look down my nose at people who enter into those arts and practice them if they make them better people, if it helps them grow and become a better person. 
just be aware of the fact that there are certain martial arts that are more heavily weighted towards the arts side of things and others that are more heavily weighted towards the martial, the, the combat side of things. And even within those, those, those disciplines like Kung Fu, there are combat-heavy Kung Fu um, schools and other schools of Kung Fu that are more about the art of it. And what ultimately are you engaging in that for? What are you there to learn? And as long as you own it and you know why you're there and you're not deluded by what the art is giving to you, what the martial art is giving to you, pay power to you. But also to remember, we all come from somewhere and all of the dead that came before us, they gave birth to us and their blood runs through our veins. And so when we look at the veins, when we look at our hands, if we look at our, our forearms, for example, right now, and you see the the blue veins in your arms and your hands, that blood that pumps through your body is Celtic and Roman and Saxon and Viking and Samurai and you name it, right? Maori, 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 Zulu, Inca, Aztec, whatever it, we all come from somewhere and the blood that courses through our veins came from those people. And we have the blood of warriors in our veins. All of us do. And we can run away from that and we can try and deny that that is a part of our heritage. We can try and eliminate violence from modern society and pretend like we're all basically good people. But the objective truth is that the blood of warriors runs through each one of our veins and we can't escape it. So an aspect, a gesture, voice, tone, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, all of it the calcium that makes up my bones, the cells that make up my flesh, the blood that courses through my veins, like I said, all has been given to me by those who have come before me and made it possible for me to be here. You know, I've told the story before about my dad in Vietnam the first day that they were boots on the ground and they were sent into battle and 100 men were sent, or 99 other men were sent in with my dad and he was the only survivor. Do you know, statistically, mathematically, what had to happen for me to be here right now talking to you in that moment that my dad was hit with shrapnel but not killed and yet everyone around him died? The, the numbers are astronomical and he should be dead, but he's not. I shouldn't have been born, but here I am. My children shouldn't be alive, but here they are. How can I not be grateful for this opportunity at life, a life that I tried to throw away when I was enslaved to my addictions. Forgetting that my father's an addict, he gave that to me. My grandpa's an addict, he gave that to me. And yet, unlike the blood that courses through my veins, I don't have to accept that part of my heritage. That part of my inheritance from my family, I can give away. I can throw it in the ditch where it belongs and say, I don't want to be an addict and I don't want to carry that forward and pass that on to my children. I don't want that to be their inheritance. That that's not my family's legacy anymore. I'm cutting that off. The, the last name Riley will no longer be associated with alcoholism, addiction, and being an outlaw. Instead, the name Riley will be associated with this from now on. Integrity, dignity, courage, kindness, sympathy and empathy, loving my neighbor, being morally good, wanting to be a good man, wanting to be a good uh, a mentor and an example to others. That's the name that's what I want the name Riley to, to communicate to others. So what do I need to do to do to get there? 
Well, first of all, you need to realize that you come from somewhere and that the good and the bad, as, as Roll says, my daily steps arise. My steps rise and fall, the good and the bad. That's what comprises me. The best parts of my heritage and the worst parts of my family's heritage, that's what makes me, me. And I can choose to squander my inheritance and become the prodigal and say, well, the good that has been passed down to me by my family or by these jujitsu practitioners or these Muay Thai practitioners, I can squander that. I can waste it. And I can treat it like it's not a treasure, devalue it, or I can embrace that and I can seek to accentuate that and pursue that even more and enjoy and relish the opportunity and the bad that I've received from my family, for example, the bad that exists within the combat martial arts, I can choose to reject that and to say, no, I'm not going to be a part of that. In fact, I'm going to actively work against the most negative aspects of this because I don't like it. And I don't want people to come in and see that and then be turned off by it and not enjoy all of the benefits that I've received from these martial arts. And so lastly, I have this picture two pictures, actually, they're taped together back to back on my desk in my office where I record at. And on one side is my great grandma, Elsie. And she grew up on a reservation in Montana. And her parents built a school and they built a church. They were missionaries to the Indians and the reservation in Montana. And again, moral judgments aside about all of that, that's what they did. And they, by all accounts, because my aunt, Debbie, set about about 20 years ago, 25 years ago of collecting and, and writing our family history. So we have a, this book now that she's put together of our family history. They were good people and they didn't exploit the Native Americans. They didn't exploit the Cherokee on the reservation in Montana, but they actually cared for them. They genuinely loved them and cared for them and got along with them and helped make their lives better in a bad situation. And then when my grandma Elsie was 18, she became a missionary to South Dakota <laughs> and so I have a picture of her at a fair, a summer fair. In fact, my great-grandma Elsie saw Orville and Wilbur Wright fly for the first time at a, at a fair. And when I asked her about that, when I was like 12 or 13, because I was blown away, I said, well, what did you think? She said, I thought it was dumb. <laughs> I said, what? She said, yeah, I watched it. It got like two or three inches off the ground. It only went for a couple, you know, like 40 yards, 30 yards, and then crashed. And she said, at the time, I thought to myself, yeah, this will never take off. This will never work. This is dumb. And, and then she laughed and said, I was, I was really wrong about that. And I think maybe made some comment about, you know, if she had known, she could have bought stock. But I have this picture then of her as a teenager, as an 18-year-old, posing with this Indian chief, this Cherokee chief, who is dressed in his full chieftain's garb with her friend at his right side and she at his, his left side. And she grew up with this man. She knew this man. And then I turned the picture over and my great, great granduncle, who was a cowboy, is here posing with his lasso, his lariat, in his chaps with his six gun and his hat and his something that he has pinned to his lapel of his jacket, kind of a piece of flair, actually. And my great, great granduncle, who was a cowboy, he drove cattle from Texas to Montana. That's what he did. And then at some point, he settled down in Montana and married, um, we think, he married a, a squaw. He married a Cherokee Indian woman and had a family. And 
if I go even further back, the whole reason that my family ended up, one side of my family ended up in Montana is because uh, before the Civil War, on one side of my family, they owned a tobacco plantation down south. And my relative, the guy that I come from, was having an affair with a slave girl. But so was a guy from the plantation down the road. They were having an affair with the same slave girl. And there was a duel. And my ancestor shot this man and uh, didn't kill him, but wounded him terribly and had to flee. <laughs> and he ran north. And so there's that aspect of my personal history. I have uh, my mother and her sisters are daughters of the uh, revolution because we can trace our ancestry all the way back to the Revolutionary War and pay stubs that we have from the Revolutionary War, which is just to say that's where I come from. I come from warrior stock. I come from missionaries. I come from Christians, preachers. I come from church builders. I come from those who fought for their family in wars. I, I come from those who fought to maintain their honor because they had an affair with a slave girl. That's where I come from. And I'm not going to turn away from that history, even the ugly parts of it, because it's how I got here. It's who I am. It's a part of me. It's the blood that courses through my veins. And if I run it back even further, like I said, there's Celtic blood and there's Viking blood. And I run it back even further. There's African blood because we all come from the same two parents. And so when it comes to the martial arts, when it comes to our family when it comes to us and who we are as human beings, as people, none of us is original. And that's great because that means we all have an opportunity to reflect on who we come from. And so we can all say, I am not myself, but I am the sum total of all of the people that came before me, that sacrificed, that worked hard, that did what they had to do to survive so that well, ultimately I could be here. So God bless all of you who came before me and God bless all of you in the present tense who make it possible for me to be here and to be satisfied with who I am today and to share that message with you and to reflect on this poem with you by Richard Roll and to talk about Nikonam Tom and, you know, the quick and dirty outline of jujitsu and to say thank you. Thank you to all of you, my coaches, my teammates, my opponents, Thank you to everyone that I've met over the years at conferences and retreats. Thank you to everyone who shared their story of sobriety and addiction with me at the many, many tables that I've sat at in sobriety meetings. Thank you to everybody. Thank you to my ancestors and everybody who made it possible for me to be here. And praise God for it. Thank you, God. So I'll wrap it up there. I'll come back probably on Sunday unless I get bored with this quarantine. Yeah, I get tired of beating up my 17-year-old. We have mats at home, so we're definitely going to roll this afternoon. But at a certain point, even my 17-year-old's like, Dad, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> I can't roll with you anymore. It's too much. And I don't have anybody to spar with in Muay Thai, so you can only beat up the heavy bag for so long. So that being said, I might just have enough nervous energy to start putting out even more podcasts. But if the podcast helps, if it gets you thinking, like I always say, and it motivates you to get up and get out, and start doing something to better yourself, then awesome. It's, it's accomplished its purpose tenfold. But uh, if you like the podcast, feel free to share it. Feel free to leave a good review for me to pump it up on the lists. And uh, yeah, promote it on social media. Share it with friends and family. 
there's something that you'd like me to discuss or someone you'd like me to read, I'd love to hear back from you. You can email me via Anchor FM at the Warrior Priest Podcast, or you can get a hold of me at the Warrior Priest Podcast on Instagram or on Facebook. Otherwise, I will see you soon for a brand new episode. And so to you, I say, peace.